We're thankful this morning to have Thomas with us. Many of you here know him, have known him from little up, maybe. Some of you may not. He is Jim and Sarah's son. And we're thankful he's consented to bring a message for us this morning. Um, he grew up here, then moved from here to the Philadelphia area to go to school, ended up getting a job there, and is involved with the church there. So let's pray, bow our heads in prayer, and commit this to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather this morning in your name, that we can worship you together as a body of believers with a common goal of glorifying your name, of encouraging and strengthening one another in our in our walk with you and in our faith. Pray that this morning as Thomas brings this message, that you would enable him and speak through him, that your word would be made clear, proclaimed to us, and just thank you for what you've laid upon his heart and how you've been leading him, and may he continue to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning. It is a joy to be with the body of Christ and a special joy to be here with all of you this morning. I so appreciate um, those of you who have been praying about the message and may the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. There's a story um, told by Professor Robert Coles. He was a psychiatry professor at Harvard and he tells the story of a young lady who is a student at Harvard. She was from a working class Midwestern background. Her family wasn't wealthy, and so to pay for her tuition, she cleaned student dorms, cleaned the rooms of her classmates. And as she was cleaning, she received numerous times ridicule from her classmates, belittling remarks. One classmate in particular propositioned her multiple times as she was cleaning his dorms, and Ironically, this particular student was in an ethics class with her, and he was one of the top. He was one of the top performers in the class. Scored some of the best grades. And finally, she had enough. Decided to drop out of school. And Professor Coles had something of an exit interview with her. And as she sat in the interview with him, she relayed all these things that she had been experiencing from her classmates. And at the end, she asked him a question. She said, I've been taking all these philosophy courses, and we talk about what's true, what's important, what's good. Well, how do you teach a person to be good? What's the point of knowing good if you don't keep trying to become a good person? Now, her question, I think, is a question that a lot of people have asked and are still asking today. Um, here in the United States, we have a pretty robust system of laws um, that govern, it seems like, every area of our lives. But people still do terrible things. People still sin. People still steal. They still cheat. They still lie. So the laws themselves obviously aren't making people good. They, should, they tell people how to be good, but they're not making people good. Well, this is a question that the Apostle Paul wrestled with, and hopefully, through the inspiration of the Spirit, he'll give us some answers this morning. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at the first 17 verses. And before we dig in, I want to give a little bit of a lead up 
to this chapter. So in Romans, Paul is really laying out the gospel. Um, and in the previous few chapters, he talks about the law, the function of the law, what it does. Um, but, but also in talking about the law, he talks about how it, it's not complete. It, it's missing something. Um, he calls the law good, but, but there's something about the law that just doesn't quite measure up to the standard. And here in chapter 8, Paul talks about the solution to this question that this girl was asking. How, how do we be good and not just know good? So we'll look at verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read this in uh, the New American Standard Version. We'll start at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, as we get into these verses, there's a few things a few terms that Paul throws around that I'd like you to keep in mind. Um, one, he talks about the law of the flesh, and then he talks about the law of the Spirit and the law of God. So we'll look at both of these just a little bit. Um, so in the first four verses, Paul gives us a little bit of an overview of the contrast between the law of the flesh and the law of the Spirit. So one question we might have, well, if, if like Paul says here, we're, we're not subject to the law because we put our faith in Christ and we have the Spirit of God living in us, then why is the law in the Bible in the first place? Why, when we're reading through the Bible, do we have to go through all 27 chapters of Leviticus and all the stuff in Exodus and Numbers if it's not binding on us? Well, the answer is because the law does actually have a purpose. Even if, even if we're not bound to follow the law, the law's purpose is it tells us what's good and tells us what's not good. And so if you look at the Ten Commandments, for example, 
These laws tell us how we're supposed to relate to God. We're not supposed to have other images of Him. We are supposed to set aside a day when we rest and when we reflect on Him. And they also tell us how to relate to each other. Um, we're not supposed to covet each other's beings. We're supposed to be faithful in our marital vows. We're not supposed to deceive each other. We're not supposed to steal from each other. And when, when we know the law and when we learn the law, sin no longer becomes innocent or benign or just something you do. Because once, once you know the law, now you know what's wrong and what's right. And so when you do something wrong, your conscience pricks you because you've read the law and you know that the law says this is wrong. So if the law is a good thing, what's the problem with the law? And, and Paul talks about some of this in chapter 7. He talks about the wrestling that he feels. He says, after I knew the law, basically life became miserable because there was, there was this thing inside of me, this, this being, this person that just so badly wanted to break the law. Even though I, had this, even though I knew what was right and, and I knew I had to follow what was right, there was this, this feeling, this impulse inside of me that just wanted to do what was wrong. And, and it just... It just feels like a civil war was going on inside of him. So if we think about the law in this way, it, it tells us the kind of people that we should be, but it doesn't, it doesn't get us there. Um, it's, it's a bit like the recipe. So um, if we look at a cake recipe, the law tells us how many eggs, how much baking, baking soda, how much baking powder, how much sugar, how much flour to put into it. Um, and it might tell us some directions about mixing it up and putting it in the oven and putting it in a pan and letting it rise or whatever it may be. But it doesn't actually take the ingredients out of the containers and measure them and put them in the bowl and mix them up and put them in the cake pan and put them in the oven. Um, so, so the law, while it gives us some direction, ha- has some shortcomings. So uh, what, what does the law do? What does the law do for us? Well, there's, there's at least three different outcomes that might come after we know the law. Um, Paul talks about one of them in in chapter 7, but I want to look at a couple others too. So in chapter 7, Paul talks about this strong desire that we have to do what breaks the law. And uh, as an example, maybe you could think of a group of middle school boys at a playground. So at a playground, you have a whole list of rules on the side, and to a group of middle schoolers, that list is a list of challenges. Um... Who would have thought that you can't swing on your hands or hop backwards on one leg? But because there's a rule that says you can't do it to a, to a middle schooler, that's a challenge. Let me see if I can do this. Oh, I wonder if I could hop backwards on one leg with my eyes closed. Um, and and the, prob- the problem with that, obviously, is that we're flaunting the law. We're not, we're not doing what it expects of us. So this can lead to another, another response is we view accomplishing the law, completing the law, keeping it, as the highest goal. The best good we can do in life is keep every single rule in the book. The problem with this approach is it turns into snobbery and comparison because obviously if I tithe 11% and my brother over here ties 10%, I must be somehow more holy because I'm tithing more. Or um, if I take the whole day off or if I try to honor the Sabbath by taking no more than 200 steps, and my sister over here takes 175, well, then, in the eyes of the law, at least, she must be keeping it better than me because she's more fulfilling what the law requires. And so when, when accomplishing the law becomes our highest goal, the degree to which we follow the commands of the law becomes a degree to which we're pleasing to God. And then we have a third possibility is what Paul talks about also in chapter 7 is we get frustrated. 
We see all these commands in the law, we read them, we try to follow them, and we get frustrated because it just doesn't work. We feel trapped. The law becomes a boundary. It becomes something that hems us in and restricts us. And so now when we go through life, we have to be really careful that we don't break this law here, we don't break that law there. We only drive 55 miles an hour because we don't want to break the speed limit and we don't want to break the law. Um, and life, life just becomes a whole exercise of jumping at shadows. We're, we're trying to figure out what's behind this next bush, making sure we don't break a law here. And it becomes so burdensome. The law just becomes a crushing weight that we have to carry around with us everywhere we go. And in our Sunday school lesson, Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So obviously, if that's what we're feeling as a result of the law, something, something's not panning out. So what's the solution that God offers in Romans 8? The solution he offers is life through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God. So in the first couple of verses, he tells us what, what is promised to us through the Spirit. No condemnation. And that word no condemnation basically means there's no guilty verdict against us. So obviously, if you break the law, you go spend your day in court, the judge hears one side, hears the other side, and delivers a verdict. And if you've broken the law, your verdict is guilty. And that, in that way, we're condemned by the law, because the law says this is what you should have done, this is what you actually did, you didn't meet the standard, and so your verdict is guilty. Through the spirit of Christ Jesus, though, our verdict is no longer guilty. We're not guilty anymore in the eyes of the law. And why is that? Well, because we're dead to the law. In, in a way, it no longer has jurisdiction over us. And Paul gives an example of this in Romans 7, where he talks about a married woman who marries a husband. Under the law, she's, she's not allowed to leave her husband and go marry someone else. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and she can go marry someone else, and it's totally fine. So in the same way, so, so that, that earlier law that keeps her bound to her original husband no longer, no longer has the authority to come up to her and say, hey, you can't do this anymore. And so in that same way, when we become free by the Spirit of Christ, the, the law no longer can come and say, hey, I see what you're doing, or hey, you shouldn't be doing that, or the law no longer has the power to do that to us. And... But, but that doesn't mean that the law has no purpose. So if we look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it very clear. He didn't, come to, he didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. So if you think about the law, earlier when we were talking about it, it, it there's, there's something that's not complete about it. It just doesn't, just doesn't accomplish what it should. And so what Jesus came to do is to close that gap and to let the law actually accomplish what it's intended to accomplish. So we, we know that the law is, is incomplete. And in the Old Testament, they realized that too. And that's why they had the system of sacrifices. So if you think about the cake analogy again, um, perhaps you're shaking in your spices and you put in a tablespoon of cardamom instead of a teaspoon of cardamom. Um, the sacrifices that you'd offer would take that extra cardamom out and make sure that your cake tastes somewhat good. But it still doesn't, it still doesn't keep you from making mistakes in the future. And it still doesn't bake the cake for you. So what Jesus, what Jesus offers us is a way to take the ingredients and bake the cake, and he gives us the ability to actually become the kind of people that the law is really pointing towards. So the law, the law has its own commands, but it's really pointing towards something else. And, and Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the laws against adultery are actually pointing towards living in purity in our thoughts and our hearts. 
and the laws against murder are really pointing towards um, loving each other and living honorably towards each other and not hating each other in our hearts. So the law actually points towards the type of person we need to become. And the power that Jesus offers gives us the ability to actually live as those types of people. So what happens if we try to live according to the law? So Paul says those who are in the flesh mind or pay attention to or are basically consumed by, focused on the things of the flesh. So the flesh, what he's talking about here, basically refers to the things that we carry out in our everyday lives, the things that we do with our hands, our feet, our minds. Um, We walk, we drive our cars, we eat, we cook, we do our dishes. These are the things we do in our flesh. And when we mind those things, that basically means we're, we're laser-focused on them. We're, we're intently interested in keeping them and carrying them out. And so the, the person who is living in the law are people that are fixated on keeping every single area of it. And Jesus, the classic example Jesus points to in the scriptures are the Pharisees. They, in, in terms of keeping the actual letter of the law, there were probably no one on earth that did better than they did. They were the gold standard. But the problem with the Pharisees is by so religiously focusing on keeping the law, they totally miss, they can't, they can't even see the kind of person that the law is calling us to become. And Jesus points this out to them. In Matthew 23, when he, when he condemns the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. So what he's he's condemning here is he's saying, look, you are so intent on tithing 10% that you'll count one out of every 10 coriander seeds out to make sure that that you tithe it. You'll count one out of every 10 mint leaves or whatever it is, but you totally miss the areas of judgment, mercy, and faith in the law. You just just can't even see it. And there's there's numerous other examples in in the law too. For example, they would only whip 39 times because the law said if you beat someone, if you beat someone that's broken the law, you can't whip them more than 40 times. So they whipped them 39 times in case they forgot once on the way through so that they kept the law. But they totally missed the whole precept that you only whip someone 40 times because even a lawbreaker has dignity and you don't just flog them to death. You treat them with respect even when you punish them, but the Pharisees completely missed that. They're so intent on making sure that I don't hit that number 40. And they're, they're so, and they, they would dedicate their possessions to God so that they didn't have to support their parents, as the law required, because these were dedicated to God. And they were totally missing the compassion and the mercy that God wrote into the law to take care of and honor those that are older than us. So when Paul discusses the law in Galatians, he calls it our schoolmaster. So if you think about your, your school teacher. They, their job is basically to teach you math, English, science, whatever, whatever society has deemed that you need to be a productive citizen, to live your life well, to get a job, to make money, to support yourself. And if you think about the law doing that for us, it, it opens our eyes to our sinfulness and basically shows us this is what we need. Now, the dangerous thing about the Pharisees and about people that are just fixated on the flesh is Outwardly, they, they look like they really have their act together. They're, they're people that seem to be very noble, very giving, very kind-hearted. 
But the problem is they can only see the flesh. They miss the, they miss the part that we're actually, we're actually a body, a soul, and a spirit. And those who pay attention to the law are so focused on the things of the body that they miss, they miss the matters of the spirit and the soul, and they totally miss the deeper meaning that Jesus had in the law. So what happens when we only focus on keeping the law? Well, Paul's pretty clear about this in Romans. Romans 6 and 5 tell us the wages of sin. The, the paycheck you get for sinning is death. Plain and simple. And, the problem, and so when you break the law, death is, death is what comes. And the problem is we don't have the power to overcome death. The death rate in America is 100%. And I think it's going to continue being 100%. And good intentions, um, good law, keep, keeping the law doesn't, doesn't keep us. James says, if you keep the whole law, but you break in one point, you're just as guilty as if you broke every single command in the book. So just to put it in perspective, imagine a murderer on trial who says, he gets up in court and says, I donate money to orphanages, I read in schools for kids, I donate 30% of my income to fight poverty. Is that murderer not guilty for doing those things? No. Because, because the murderer broke the law, they're guilty. So under, under the law of sacrifices, the Jews had a way that they could atone for their sins or basically cover for them. But the, the problem with the law of sacrifices is it still didn't have the power to make them be the type of people that, that God intended for them to be, to live the kind of lives that he intended for them to live. And so, in a sense, the law was kind of like an electric fence down either side of a path. If you bump against it, it shocks you, it reminds you that you're there, and kind of redirects you. Um, so it, it directed God's people towards him, but, but it still didn't give them the power to walk that path perfectly. And so they would stumble and fall against the law and hurt themselves. So it, it was, it's a good thing, but in and of itself, it's not complete. And Paul sums it up as saying, those that can't see past the deeds of the flesh, don't even try to please God because you have no chance. There is no chance of pleasing God if that's all the farther you go. But, brothers and sisters, there's hope. Jesus offers us life through the Spirit. And he uses the analogy of dying and being born again, which for me is a little hard to grasp because I've never died and been born again physically. But um, I'll, I'll try to make it a little more understandable for, um, for the rest of you. So in order to be... First of all, in order to be subject to what Paul calls here the law of the law of God or the law of the law of Christ, we have to die to the jurisdiction of the law of the flesh. Basically, it, it, it has to no longer condemn us before we can be submitted to the law of God. And that's why God calls us to lay down our lives to surrender to Him. As Bonhoeffer says, when God calls a man, He bids him come and die. God asks for everything, and we have to give Him everything. But this dying results in a total transformation. So if you think about Moses' rod, for example, when he was a sheep herder and he was talking to God in the burning bush, God asked him to throw his rod down. And up to that point in time, it probably looked just, it probably looked just like any other shepherd's rod. Um, but he throws it down, and it turns into a snake. And then God tells him to pick it up, and he picks it up again, and it turns back into a rod. But ever after he threw it down... It was a different rod. It might have looked the same, but there was, there was a significance and an authority that went with it that it didn't have before. 
And in the same way, when in faith we choose to accept the sacrifice of Jesus as a payment of our penalty for sin and accept the Holy Spirit as our guide to live as disciples of Jesus here on earth, that's like throwing our lives down. And God picks them up again and gives us the power to live as he designed us to be like. So what, what are these people like that live in the power of the Spirit? Well, God's Spirit lives among them. And if you think about in the Old Testament, for example, the tabernacle, God, God actually physically lived with the people of Israel. But now today, he doesn't live in a building. He lives inside each of us. Paul calls our bodies the tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. And so wherever we are, whenever we're gathered together, God is there because he lives in us. And what's the result of trusting in the Spirit? The result is that death can only touch our physical bodies. It can't touch our soul, and it can't touch our spirit. And Paul, Paul talks about this. He says, even if the body's dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. But what's even more than that, even if, even if death temporarily touches our bodies, so even after becoming believers, we still die eventually, but we have the promise of resurrection. Our bodies are not going to be dead forever. There's going to come a day when our bodies are going to be raised and they're, become, they're going to become alive again. You see, death, death, is, death is something that people fear, but the only, thing, the only thing that gives death its power and its fear is because it's seen as final. Um, you can be as successful as you want, you can live, live life as fully as you want, but when you die, you're dead. But if death no longer has the final word, it loses its power over us. Because all death can do is put someone in the grave for a period of time. Can't take them out forever. And in the same way, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. He has the power to raise people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and he himself raised from the dead. And that power that did that is living inside of us. So as we accept his spirit to guide us and live in us, we can also have the assurance that just as that power raised his body from the dead, it'll someday raise our body from the dead. And so death doesn't have the final word. And also, with his spirit living in us, we have a direct face-to-face relationship with God. In the Old Testament, that wasn't possible. There was a veil in the temple and in the tabernacle, and only the high priest could go past that veil and communicate with God. His people couldn't have a direct relationship with him. But now... Because Jesus went in there as our high priest and brought his blood to the mercy seat, that veil is gone, and we can have a direct face-to-face relationship with God, and his spirit inside of us communicates with him, and we can have a dialogue with him. And as a result, his spirit in us brings not just life, but transformation. So if you think about accepting that sacrifice that Jesus gave us, um, this puts us in God's debt. And this idea, this idea, some people might just, like in our culture, we may push against it because, because Western culture, we value freedom and liberty and the ability to do what we want so much. But if you think about it, it actually makes perfect sense because if, if we're going to accept what God is offering to us, it's so much bigger than we can ever repay. So we will be in his debt. We can choose to reject his gift, but if we accept it, we're in his debt by accepting the payment he offered by his son. And because we owe this to him, we can no longer live the way we used to. We can't can't just do whatever we want. 
And so we can't just keep living after the manner of the flesh. Now, what this, what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we, have, that we don't pay any attention to what we do with our body, with our hands, with our feet, with our mind, with our mouth, with our eyes. But it means now, instead of only paying attention to the things that relate to what we do with our body, we also have to pay attention to the things of the spirit and the soul. And um, <clears throat> Dwight's devotional this morning about Abraham is a perfect example of that. So from a physical point of view, strictly speaking, there is no logical reason for Abraham to do what he did. There is no explanation for why he should kill his son. But because Abraham had faith and his spirit and his soul were alive, that faith led him to obey even though his flesh said otherwise. And that's how it works in our lives too. What we do in our body is important, but what we, what we do based on what, the, what God's spirit is leading us to do is far more important. And so... As we, follow, as we follow the Spirit, we have to put to death the things of the body. So the thing about accepting God's Spirit is it does bring a transformation, but, but it, it, it kind of kicks off an avalanche that continues throughout the course of our lives and won't be completed in its fullness until after, until after we die and we're reunited with Christ. So all throughout our lives, there are still fragments of that old life of our flesh that keep popping up and have to keep getting grabbed by that snowball as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so Paul calls us here to put to death the deeds of the body. So this, this refers to the habits and practices of our body, the things, that, the things that we used to do that now are no longer appropriate. So if we had a habit of lying before God's Spirit made us alive, we have to work to stop that. If we had a habit of finding satisfaction or release in pornography or fantasy or romance novels, we have, to, we have to find our satisfaction in the Lord and put away those habits and curb those things. We, we, can't, we can't give it jurisdiction over us again. We can't give it power over us again because that's been broken. And so we can't continue to put ourselves under that law because we're being led by the law of the Spirit. But the, the, the important thing to realize with this is as we're putting these habits to death, we're no longer just doing it through sheer willpower, but through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So in Romans 7, when Paul's talking about the things of the law and trying to keep the law, it, it, he almost gives the picture of just gritting your teeth and clenching your muscles and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, I'm going to do that, just doing it under sheer willpower, and it just is agonizing and takes all your energy and your force to actually do it. But when we die, we receive a transformed heart by the Holy Spirit. When God is talking to Israel in Ezekiel 36, he tells them, A new heart also will I, the Lord, give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So did you catch what he said there? We are no longer causing ourselves to follow the law. God's Spirit is causing us to follow the law. Instead of being those middle schoolers at the playground who are viewing the law as a challenge, we suddenly have a desire to follow God's law, to honor it, to honor Him through honoring His law. And as a result of accepting the Holy Spirit and having Him living inside of us, we become children of God. So when we follow the law and we obey the law, and that's all that we observe, that's all that we keep, it, it leads to slavery. And Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, don't, 
Don't yield the, the parts of your body. Don't, don't make them slaves to sin. Don't make them slaves to those, those things that just want to wreck your body. And the principle he talks about here in chapter 6 is whoever or whatever we submit ourselves to, we become slaves to. And so Paul is encouraging us, don't become slaves to sin, don't become slaves to those passions in you, but become slaves of Christ. And the interesting thing about slaves is their, their only value is really economic or pragmatic. And so uh, just to kind of define pragmatic, um, it basically relates to whatever is purely practical. So it's pragmatic to turn your lights off when you leave your house because your energy bill's lower. Um, it's pragmatic not to tramp on the accelerator every time you head out of your driveway because you'll get a little bit more mileage out of your tank of gas. So, and owning, owning slaves is a lot the same way. If it makes sense to have 12 slaves to run this business, I'll get 12 slaves, and if I can do it with 11, well, I only get 11. So, you're, as a slave, really your only value is economic, what, what, you, what you can do, what, what you have to offer. And if, if that's all we are, it's, it's a bit unfortunate because then our only value is what we can produce. So if you think about your slave breaking its leg, you don't, you don't just say, oh, I, I need to fix that. But if, if it's a slave, you think, well, I should probably think about how much value I expect to get out of this slave the rest of his lifetime versus how much it's going to cost to get his leg fixed. And if it's too much, it's just not worth it to me. So if... That, that's the identity of a slave. But that's not all we are. It's far different when we're a child. A child is your own flesh and blood. And instead of having pragmatic value, children have intrinsic value. And intrinsic value is value just because of what they are. So if you think about a Michelangelo or a da Vinci painting, for example, it's not valuable because it has a high grade of canvas or because it has certain pigments put in certain places. It's valuable because of what it is, because of who made it. And children aren't, they're, if you think about children, for example, they're, they're not valuable because of the economic benefit they bring to their children. They're not valuable because they clean the house, because they do the dishes, because they keep the flower beds weeded, because they do the chores. They're valuable because they're your kids. And Paul calls us God's masterpiece. In Ephesians 2, we are God's masterpiece, his Da Vinci, his Michelangelo. We're valuable because we were made by him as a master artist. But we're not just his children, we're his adopted children. So just contrast for a moment the difference between an adopted child and a biological child. So you, you obviously can't choose your children, so you're stuck with whoever you have. Some uh, sleep great through the night, others wake up every two hours. Some are whiny, some are just perfect angels. Um, some, you pour your lives into them and they grow up and they throw it all out the window and turn their backs on the Lord. Others live a faithful life, but they're your, they're your children. But adopted children aren't yours just because you had them. Children, adopted children are chosen. So if you're an adopted child, it's as if you were put in a whole lineup of children and God went down the line and he was looking in the faces of each one and he said, I want you. I want you. You are chosen. He looked at all the possibilities and said, I want this one. I want this one. And we respond by calling him Abba, Father. And I, I was looking into what, what does this word Abba actually mean? There's, there's a little disagreement over what exactly 
what, it, what exactly it, con it connotes, um, it, it is a really intimate term, like calling someone daddy would, would be similar, but, but there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, I was reading an article by, by a scholar who was, who was uh, in, in Israel, and he overheard an interaction between a father and his young son. father was helping him wash his hands, and he said to him, Son, whenever I ask you to do something, I want you to call me Abba. And so there's really two connotations to Abba. It's a, word, it's, a, it's a term of intimacy, but it's also a term of submission and obedience. It's recognizing, you're my father, and I choose to submit to you. I choose to obey you. It's obedience because we choose to respect his authority as our father and respect and honor him for the fact that he's chosen us. And as a result of being adopted, we have a new identity. We're children of God. We're not just floundering around with those who keep the law. We're children of God. And because we're God's children, we'll inherit from him. So um, natural children, when your parents or your grandparents die, they make a will, and if they had lots of possessions, those will pass down, and you as their children stand and inherit from them. So because we're God's children, we're going we're gonna to get an inheritance from him. And that inheritance is the eternal, abundant life that he offers. And even, even more, and that might seem like a bad deal because I don't think God is going to die anytime soon, but he's so concerned about keeping his promise that he's given us a down payment until he actually pays us. That, that down payment is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so when you're buying a house, for example, you give someone a down payment to basically make a promise not to sell that house to anyone else. You say, I want this house and I want to buy it, so I'll give you 3% of the price so that you don't go turn around tomorrow and sell it to someone else. And in that way, God has given us the Holy Spirit. And so by that, he's promising, he's saying, look, you're my children, and I'm not going to turn around tomorrow and say, you're no longer my child. Tomorrow I'm still going to say, you're my child. And the Holy Spirit is that down payment where he, he said, I'm going to fulfill my promise with you. Until the time he actually does, that's the function that the Holy Spirit operates in our lives. But it's also important to recognize that when we choose to identify as God's children, that'll bring conflict into our lives. Paul talks about that in chapter 17. If, if we suffer with Christ, um, Jesus says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And, and it makes sense, because earlier on, he, Paul talks about those that are in the flesh, pay attention to the things of the flesh, and th there's a conflict between the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit, and they're fighting, and so if you're following one, you can't follow the other. And so as we, as we choose to identify with the things of the spirit and with God's leading in our lives, we're going we're gonna to start butting heads, we're going to run into conflict with those who are just dedicated to the things of the flesh. And who knows what that will cost us, but if, we, if we're willing to suffer like Jesus suffered, we have the promise of joining in company with him and being exalted and honored with him when he's vindicated, when his power over sin is vindicated and it becomes obvious to everyone that he's defeated and conquered sin. We'll share in that celebration and that victory and that rejoicing with him. In closing, I'd like to read a poem. And this, is, this isn't an actual thing that happened. This is just the the poet thinking about, well, what, what, would hap what, what if this would happen? And as I read this, I want you to think about yourself in the shoes of 
in the shoes of this, of this poet and just realizing what Jesus does in this poem. It goes, My death was past, my judgment come, I trembled, and my heart grew numb. The devil waved before the throne a sign where all my sins were shown. I looked and saw the sign was great in size. The type was small, and tears came to my eyes. The devil sneered at my dismay and began to drag my sinking soul away. Where could my Savior be? I I thought he died so I could be set free. Then Jesus strode into the room. He saw my sins. He saw my doom. He reached the throne and grabbed the sign, then turned to God and cried, He's mine. I died for him. He trusted me. I rescued him. I set him free. I nailed his sins upon my tree. Now I'm with him, and he's with me. He is now my property, and he will live with me eternally. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for your love for us and your willingness to submit to the will of your Father, even all the way to dying on the cross, even before we knew you and before we loved you, but you loved us. Thank you for being willing to offer that life to us, the ability to live as God intended for us to live when he created us. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that leads us and shows us how we should live, but also is a down payment that God is going to keep his promises in our lives. Help us to, help us to keep learning to hear the Holy Spirit, to hear his guidance in our life, to have faith in God's promises and not in our own abilities. Lord, teach us how to live more like you. I pray that you would go forth and speak through these words and that your will and your, your will would be accomplished and that your kingdom would continue to expand and flourish and grow here on earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.